Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. We're here continuing our requests for startup series, and today we're going to talk about the intersection of life sciences and software and technology. And I'm joined by two very special guests, our very own portfolio CEO, Rachel Craig, CEO, founder of Motion Hall, and very special guest, Ed Saltzman. Ed, Rachel, can you begin by introducing yourselves, what you're, what you're working on, and what problem you're most excited about solving? Sure, sure. Zenjin, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Motion Hall, part of the Village portfolio. Motion Hall is building a global platform for biopharma deal making. And the reason I'm super excited about this is that the deals that we focus on are the way in which new medications move from patent through the discovery and development process and out to patients. And so by creating efficiency there, I expect to change the way that medications get commercialized. Thanks. And, and hi, hi everyone. I'm Ed Salsman. As Eric indicated, I'm the founder and executive chairman of Defined Health. We are a business development strategy consultancy exclusively focused on bringing strategy to early stage science. Um, and so therefore intersect tremendously with the business development world in the life sciences. I think what I'm most excited about is the age we're living in, the age of biology. I'm truly excited about um, so many of the things we get to work on every day that over a span of a career of 25 plus years, I have never seen the level of innovation at the level it's at today. I haven't even seen anything close to a point what's very exciting is if you were to ask me to predict what I see in the next three to four to five years, there would be an awful lot of caveats around it. It's a, and that's, that's good because it's a very, very, very exciting time. That's a perfect segue. Let's get into that. Why is now, you know, for all the entrepreneurs and investors out there who are, you know, curious about the space, but haven't, you know, built a, built a company or invested yet in the space. Why is now such an exciting time? And how has that evolved over time? Maybe you could take us on a little journey of, of, of some of the history of, of how everything's led up to now being such a ripe opportunity. Sure. So for most of the history of the pharmaceutical industry, and when I speak of pharmaceuticals, I encompass biotechnology, the the industry was focused on a limited number of what we refer to as targets, you know, tissue sites, pathways, um, receptors in the human body that can be drugged. And because there was such a limited number of those drug targets, largely due to a lack of understanding of genetics and in the role that genes play in disease, which has, has, has closed tremendously over the course of the past two decades, but which closes even more every single day. The gap in terms of, you know, our understanding of biology and, and the role that it plays in disease, which allows the, the companies and the innovators out there to intervene earlier into disease processes with drugs that, in diseases that for which we didn't either have drugs, of which now we are looking at the hope of having much better drugs. We've entered the age of gene therapy after many, many fits and starts, and we're able to pretty soon offer therapies to, to children with a disease called spinal muscular atrophy, which is a rapidly fatal disease that fortunately only affects a, a very small population of children. But the, the, the symbolism and the meaning that comes out of, of such progress 
that of, of diseases that we haven't progressed against since the beginning of time um, is remarkable. And the other thing I would add is the, you know, and I'm sure you, you know, most of you are able to to read this, you know, even in the in the standard, you know, media, the advances that we're making, especially in um, in in oncologic diseases, especially with harnessing the power of the immune system, is is truly absolutely stunning. So I'm I'm just I'm just have never, as I say, never seen a time where this much innovation um, is moving as quickly. And I've never seen a time when so much of it is translating into new therapeutics in so rapid a time. So very exciting. So, so I think um, definitely agree with everything that Ed said, and then maybe kind of dovetailing with that and some of the pieces that we're acutely aware of here at Motion Hall is just the abundance of data that's newly available to work on solutions in this industry. I think that's something Thing that entrepreneurs looking at AI-driven drug discovery get excited about is something I think Joe at Verisim gets excited about. It's something that we get excited about at Motion Hall. And it's not just that the data is more available than it's been in the past, but also that the tools are ready, right? So I think people are very aware, document classification, entity extraction, topic modeling, some of the tools that we use at Motion Hall are newly ready to really deep dive into the wealth of knowledge that's available in the life sciences, the complexity that goes into decision-making and drug development and sort of bolster that process. So so maybe that's sort of a more tech-driven angle at what's so exciting right now, both massive innovation on the biology side, as well as massive potential for innovation uh, with software tools that can play in the space as well. Can you expand a little bit on on why there's an abundance of data now compared to a few years ago and what some of the novel data sources you see that we can that we can leverage in a way that we couldn't before? Sure. I think, um, you know, and my specialization is, of course, maybe closer to what we look at at Motion Hall. But there's been changes, particularly at the FDA regulated level, in terms of what types of data is published online and is available for, for use. And there's also, of course, an abundance of scientific literature. What's been tricky in the past is both accessing that data, but also making sense of it. And so it just wasn't possible even five years ago or, or two years ago to do a five-year regression on things like some of the clinical trials data that's now available and can be mined for insight. Let, let's uh, let's pretend that you guys, you know, uh, Rachel and Ed, we're starting a a fund exclusively focused mm-hmm. in the space, a, a venture capital fund. How, how would you delineate in terms of what would be the sectors or, or the subspaces or the, uh, in which you would invest in? If we were to sort of make a market map, so to speak, of hey, these are the areas we'd be we'd be pretty excited about. How would you how would you separate it out? You know, I have a sense that a lot of the biological complexity um, can be addressed, but there's also more attention going there. Uh, And some of it's very hard. I think what gets me really excited is that the life science is an industry that hasn't seen much change in terms of tooling for business process or efficient business management in a very long time. And so if enterprise tools are exciting to you, if you think changing the way medications get to market, the way pharma companies operate, there's tremendous levels of opportunity. So I think my fund would be focused entirely on uh, business process tools, workspaces, workflows, infrastructure that helps make the way these companies operate more efficient, more effective, and more able to execute on their goals. 
and I think that's a um, and a comment on what what Rachel said, and I think that that is a an excellent view and an, it's an excellent vision. One of the and, and because Eric, you didn't ask specifically, and maybe the question is coming up is is what what would concern me, and and to get to you know what I would invest in as from the venture side, I think it's also looking what concerns you, okay? And what concerns me in the midst of all this excitement and tremendous excitement, I can't possibly convey it well enough is the fact that the one thing that sits in the back, like the elephant in the back seat to choke off progress, is is pricing. It's the cost of medicines, um, which is a direct right. function, no matter what you may read in the media, of you know at least a large portion, the cost and the risk of developing those medicines. And the industry has been passing on that cost successfully for many, many years, you know, to the end user whether that be a government, an insurance company, a patient, you know, or some other stakeholder. But the staggering cost of these drugs is not going to be sustainable. It is not sustainable today. So whenever you have an ex a talk about, you know, the excitement, somebody has to, you know, be the buzzkill and come up and say, you know what, um, I hate to be the party pooper, but, you know, this is going to be a problem, right? We have 5,000 or so genetic diseases that have been characterized and we're working on and starting to work on solutions for those diseases, but with therapies that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and in fact, millions of dollars a year, you can do the math relatively simply. So a big part of the industry is, is as Rachel has said, is is time. The time capital cost, you know, of obviously of money, a high cost of capital, particularly in biotechnology companies that are very, very perceived as very, very high risk from investors. But a big center of that is the amount of time it takes and simply the, the cost of the complexity of the, you know, the drug development, discovery and development cycle. So I would say I agree with Rachel. I think that, you know, companies that would be enabling to allow the industry to become more efficient as it continues to create, you know, scientific marvels and marvelous therapies is exactly um, what I would invest in. I think from a, from a, from a life sciences direct point of view, I might give you a bit of a, of a controversial answer. And I think it may also tie a little bit into what Rachel has just said. An area that we are, you know, appallingly underinvested in um, right now, and which as an investor, I might not be chasing right now because it's underinvested for very good reason. Our new therapy large widespread chronic diseases. Um, mm -hmm. These are diseases like, you know, fibrotic diseases. These are, you know, inflammatory diseases. These are cardiovascular diseases, metabolic diseases. They're the antithesis of rare diseases because they inflict huge global populations. And, you know, the industry is going to need to wrestle with this and pretend, not pretend that these diseases can be ignored and go away because that's truly where the unmet need is. Well, the problem is from a drug discovery and regulatory standpoint, those diseases are exactly the ones that people don't want to go after because the staggering cost of the capital to get a drug to the market and the, and the actual length of time becomes, you know, becomes headwinds that are just way too forcible. And, and so therefore, you know, what I would hope is that some of the some some power that the tech side can bring to development of drugs for large populations would be is very very compelling and if there was an opportunity to invest there that I knew of I think I would. Ed, can I um sort of ask a dovetailing question with that? You, know, you and I before this call were talking a little bit about pricing coming down, what that means for the industry, and I think you had some interesting sort of thoughts on how pricing coming down will really impact 
potentially receptivity to software solutions and inspire a dialogue. And I wonder uh, if you can speak a little bit more to that point. Sure, I'll try. Uh, so, so I think that you know, as I said, the pricing discussion in 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 the biopharmaceutical world is is issue number one in every boardroom. It's issue number one in every investor conference. It's issue everyone in every breakout session at the big investor meetings. And, and, but we still continue to persist in a world of denial and hope that it will all go away. You know, the amusing part is that we're blaming the pricing, the pressure on pricing on politics, on the lousy reputation of the pharmaceutical industry, all of which is correct. But, you know, fundamentally people keep saying, well, it's just because there've been a few bad actors that have been egregious on their pricing. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, or nothing could be further from the holistic truth, you know, the entirety of it. The fact of the matter is, is that the inefficiency in the industry, okay, has for years been passed on, okay, to, to, to the customer. Okay. And again, that customer is a multitude of stakeholders these days, um, but that cu- customer is increasingly powerful increasingly consolidated, which means there are actually fewer customers if you look at the industrial purchase of, of industrial purchases of healthcare and in particular pharmaceuticals. So my belief is that there need to be solutions because I think we have to start thinking about a world in which prices are are for medicines, even breakthrough medicines are lower. And you know, and that shouldn't be a world that we have to run away from. And it shouldn't be a world that a biotech CEO can't answer the questions for investors and say, you know what, my program is just as valuable. Okay, from a valuation point of view, my program is just as valuable because it's going to take me a much shorter period of time to get it to the market. The chances of success are going to be much, much higher. Okay. And therefore, I will be able to charge a lower price for the for the medicine. So, you know, I think that totality of that has to come together. It also will extend into drug discovery itself. Drug discovery is still a very expensive and although it has been increasingly intelligent and increasingly less the random screening that characterized the industry for years and increasingly genetically targeted, it's still a very inefficient process. And I think that's why we've seen a lot of interest in the AI-oriented startups that are, that are looking into drug discovery. Where do you want to see people innovate in drug discovery? You know, again, I'm not a scientist and I probably should have disclosed that in the, you know, in, in the conversation. I've been making my living as a consultant in a scientifically driven industry for more than 25 years. But my perspective on drug discovery is very 30,000 foot level as it should be. I, I would, I would, however, say that from the, from the side of drug discovery, which we're, again, where I think we need more innovation, right? And, and I think, and I'll, I'll be, at the risk of being a little bit repetitive, I'll go back to the understanding of large populations of, 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 in fact, global populations, being able to break down those populations genetically, phenotypically, demographically, in all kinds of ways to be able to understand, okay, how to do drug discovery and not insignificantly drug development, which is the really expensive part um, in large populations. One of the concerns I have about the industry is is the industry is moving and this is very much um, a technology flavor 
to what's going on in the life sciences right now is that the life sciences were probably is probably one of the last big industries, perhaps the last big industry that's really been has resisted the forces of personalization. What we're seeing today is we're seeing, you know, we're seeing ultra personalization. We're seeing actual cancer vaccines where antigens are directed at an individual, a single individual's unique tumor. Okay. This is a, you know, a stunning scientific achievement. And it's absolutely amazing. But if you look at global, if you look at health as a global issue, you look at it through, through an entirely different lens. So, you know, my view is, I'll be sum- summarized, and I don't want to be, you know, redundant to what Rachel said. I think the way these worlds need to come together um, is we need to make um, the, the discovery and development of drugs for large global populations with chronic disease much more efficient and much more successful. And I think if I if I kind of summarize some of that, I think, Ed, you know, maybe the soundbite is, you know, some of the pricing pressure that you talked about earlier, that will likely drive uh, a willingness to adopt tools that aid with efficiency, that aid companies in being able to very cheap, more cheaply and more efficiently develop drugs and get those out to patients. And I think likewise, if AI can play a meaningful role in the drug discovery process that has an outsized benefit, I am curious, because, you know, we've talked about this before. Software tools have been making a promise in drug discovery for a long time, and we've yet to see a lot of platforms that that look like they're really driving successful drug discovery. And I'm curious what that looks like from your perspective and from from sort of the industry point of view. You know, we've had two phrases. We have sort of buzz terms that we've dealt with in the life sciences world for the for the last ten years. One is big data, and the other one is computational biology. The latter is just a more specific reference to the, you know, to the forma, to the forma, um, which was probably more applicable to the drug discovery side of things as opposed to the patient side of things. But, you know, regardless, there's been a lot of, there's obviously a lot of hype and, and, and there's a lot of hype in, in both our industries. You know, we deal with hype in the life sciences all the time because, first of all, it's hard, as I said earlier, it's hard to overstate the progress, you know, that's been made. It's, it's absolutely stunning. Um, even more exciting, the progress will be made. But because we're dealing with life and death and huge impact on individuals, hype always, always precedes, you know, the reality and the, you know, and it doesn't matter what disease it is or, or what context it is. So the idea of being able to use, you know, big data or computational biology to reduce what is inherently a low yield process of of discovering drugs and then designing drugs that will that will effectively intersect with a desired target um, is something that um, you know has been around for a really long time. There is a new generation of companies, and Eric, you may be familiar with 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 some or quite a few of them, that are AI platforms that are specifically targeting the entirety of the drug discovery operation, uh, let's just say artificially or synthetically or through, through, through artificial intelligence. And those are, you know, I would say probably, I, I don't know this, what the actual amount is, is even close, but it probably wouldn't be an overstatement to say that a billion dollars of invested capital, almost all private capital has gone into startups in this space. But to Rachel's question or observation, you know, the proof will be in the pudding. You know, pharma is interested in these in these platforms and interested in these tools. But the way these actually get um, embedded into pharma and into the lab and the way sort of what we'll call the wet world 
okay, which is, you know, the chemistry and the biology world meets sort of the dry world, um, you know, which is the, the computu- computational and the coding and the analytical world, it's still a very, very, you know, uh, it, 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 we've got a long way to go in, in, in fusing these two together. Uh, I, I think there's kind of some nice bullet points that, that Ed and I had and sort of, uh, again, that gap point that's really interesting to me, I think that's interesting to you, Eric, you know, between software and the life sciences. And we kind of talked a little bit about how maybe hubris on the software side and a lot of skepticism and resistance to change on the biopharma side. I think I had maybe a question for each of you. Eric, I'm curious how you see investment trends changing from your perspective, someone who sits at Village and very connected, looking at the life sciences and the excitement there, and then maybe contrast that with, you know, sort of add how you see receptivity to software uh, in the life sciences industry and how people are responding in 2018. Well, a couple things. One is I want to mention that I got into this initially by following the entrepreneurs and that there's a sort of, you know, set of repeat, you know, I, I run this community called on deck for people who are looking to start or join their next thing. It's a set of repeat entrepreneurs. Which is awesome. Who, thank you. Who've been, uh, repeat entrepreneurs have been successful in enterprise or, or, or consumer businesses and are now looking to, you know, tackle, you know, big, enormous, thorny, meaningful, meaningful problems. And so initially just by, by following entrepreneurs is sort of how I, I got into the space. Um, and we made a, a few investments. One is, uh, you know, Motion Hall, obviously. Another is, uh, is Verisim that is, uh, also in the clinical trial space that is trying to take the, uh, you know, replace animals from animal testing and replace them with, uh, with machine learning or in biosimulation models. Cause as we know, it, uh, you guys are trying to help here too. It costs, you know, $2.6 billion to bring a drug to market. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes a dozen years, uh, incredibly high failure rate. So Verisim is trying to tackle that. And then RDMD, which is sort of like a flat iron for, for rare diseases. I think what's interesting in the three examples I mentioned is, and what we look for in investment is, is really strong founder market fit. And part of that is in addition to, you know, the usual skills of, of, uh, of an entrepreneur, it's, it's some real domain expertise. And I think Rachel, your experience, you know, prior to motion hall, like, you know, in the world of, of, you know, it's not like you were doing the work, you experienced the, the pain firsthand made you sort of uniquely situated to, to, to build this product and, and, you know, empathize with the customers. Right. And Joe, uh, the CEO of Verisim is, uh, you know, a veterinarian, also a PhD in, you know, uh, in genomics. Um, and so has sort of a unique understanding of both the, uh, and then also I should say sort of grew up in the pharma world. Her, her dad was at, I believe started her, either worked at Genentech or started her, his own biotech company and, and she herself interned at Genentech. So she understood, you know, enough about pharma to be dangerous, uh, but then also really understood the technology from multiple perspectives. And then RDMD, the CEO himself had a, a rare disease, a, a NF2, a rare form of cancer, which enabled him to, you know, empathize with his customer in, in a, um, in a, you know, sort of differentiated way and also build out uh, a community in a way that, um, in a trusted way. And then his partner, uh, Nancy worked at, uh, was head of corporate at 23 and me. So un- understood okay. some, the pharma side. So th- that's one thing in terms of what we're looking for invest investing. I think the, um, you know, drug discovery is a very sexy space, uh, as Ed mentioned, and there's enormous opportunity there. We're, we're interested. I think clinical trials is a really interesting space. And I, I, I like, you know, Rachel, we talked about in terms of improving workflows and it's, it's maybe, it's, you know, not as, as sexy, but it's, um, 
you know, enormous. I think that's where most of the opportunity is. I can comment on that, Eric and, and Rachel. Thank you. So I, I do, I want to maybe introduce a, um, a little bit of, of, as I said, I've been, been doing this for 25 one more years and I want to introduce a little bit of a historical perspective. So I think it's important. Um, when we look at business models and we look at, you know, and we look at, um, investment opportunity, you know, this isn't the first generation or the first time in history that tools, okay, that IT tools came into the biotechnology or the life sciences industry. I mean, let's be frank. I mean, we sequenced a human genome around the turn of the century. And, you know, we've done nothing except continue to improve the efficiency and the understanding of the information that came out of the original sequencing of the human, you know, of the human genome. So, you know, I don't, you know, it's not that, you know, tools are, are new. They're not. The challenge has been, and this is probably may not be an accurate statement because there's just no way to actually fact check it. So I feel very confident saying it, at least for the, the, the companies that I was aware of that started off as tools companies with a, with that, you know, with, with a vision to become life sciences companies, none of them ever became life sciences companies or therapeutics companies. And most of them really never inflected all that much value. And the reason is they become tools. Okay. And, and tools, particularly in this era, commoditize relatively rapidly and they spread. So all the advantages that give us all the power and all the platforms that we have, I, and I'll put on my, you know, my life sciences hat for, you know, for a minute. I mean, I've mentioned this to Rachel as we've chatted about, you know, the two different sectors in the industry. When you work in the life sciences industry, you wake up every morning with the security that your work um, will be protected by intellectual property that will, you know, give you in effect a regulated monopoly on your drug, uh, and not even regulated because free pricing in the United States. My comments on pricing before, you know, notwithstanding. So, you know, you you build companies based on products and product revenues, and the and the market valuations are obviously a multiple of that and the implied growth or the expected growth of the company. So, you know. I don't know that for all the excitement that we've seen, I've seen a company transition yet, okay, from, from, from informatics, let's just call them informatics companies and analytics companies focused on drug discovery to a actual drug company. I'm going to correct that statement thinking along the way. There is a company called Insight Pharmaceuticals that's worth um, quite a few billion dollars now or substantially less since they failed in their combination um, immuno-oncology trial. But, you know, having said that, they were one of the original genomics companies around the turn of the century that was fortunate enough to raise several billion dollars. Um, and be able to deploy, you know, most or a lot of that to pursuing their own drug. But that might be the only one. There are very few um, of those original companies that ever managed to make that divide. So I'd like to ask both Eric, you know, and Rachel, your thoughts about that, because I think that's where the perilous, you know, um, side sits for investors, you know, into AI funded, you know, kind of kind of startups. It's really in business model. It's not in the technology and it's not in the promise of the technology, but it's how do you get that genie out of the bottle? So I, I think a lot of that touches on sort of business model and software defensibility, which is something that we think a lot about on the tech side. And so when you're planning out your business, right, it can't be something that's easy to copy uh, or commoditize or it's not a very interesting company. And so we're, we're generally not using patents and software. Sometimes we're using trade secrets. But I think the way 
you know, a lot of the, the good companies uh, that are emerging are being built is with kind of careful thought to defensibility and network effects, right? So whether that's a proprietary data advantage that can be grown and managed over time, such that it's difficult for another company to come in and duplicate, maybe an algorithm that gets stronger over time as well. I know at Motion Hall, we look at both data network effects as well as marketplace network effects, and ideally becoming something like a protocol for the industry around deal making, which will do a lot for our defensibility. I think I think Eric probably thinks about this even more than I do, because every company he evaluates, you'll be thinking about uh, what's a defensible advantage in that company and how are they going to maintain that advantage over time such they can't be interfered with by a competitor. Well, I think, going back to a little bit what I was saying about domain expertise, I think this is the type yeah. of space where you both need, you know, technology expertise and like pharma, like industry ex- expertise. And I think it's, I think it's pretty yeah. hard. I think we see a lot of technologists who don't have the industry expertise, but they, you know, they're sort of, you know, technology looking in search for a problem that there's just no way they're going to be able to, you know, interface with these companies, uh, unless, you know, unless of course they use motion hall, uh, <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> and, and vice versa. People don't necessarily understand technology. I'm curious, it segues a little bit into something I wanted to ask you in terms of how do you guys, what do you guys think is the biggest misconception both worlds have about each other? Like what do technologists just not understand about, about the industry and what do, what is the, you know, what do industry folks just not understand about, about technology or technologists or Silicon Valley broadly? Yes, that's a great question. So, I mean, I think that team formation piece is really, really tricky. Something we put a lot of time and effort in to building up at Motion Hall, understanding that if you don't have the right blend of industry expertise and frontier technology capability at the beginning of your company formation, you can be paying a lot for those mistakes down the road. Your company just might not be viable. So team formation, I think, is both important and it does give you a defensible advantage. I think, you know, the biggest mistake I see on the software side, of these companies get sent to me all the time, is that there's just a total sort of lack of awareness, maybe a naivety. I think Ed and I, you and I have talked about this a bit, about just how complex and sophisticated the life sciences industry is. And that when you're looking into going into a problem space, you really have to love diving into that complexity. You have to really love working with the experts in that space. And you need to have a lot of respect for how that complexity can inform your product. Now, I think on the other side, you kind of get arrogance on both sides. On the other side, the life sciences industry tends to be highly skeptical. I think they've seen a lot of software promises and solutions that failed or didn't make, you know, make their way to their promise. And it's also a scientifically driven industry. So scientists tend to be skeptical and want to test things by default. And so what that does is it creates a higher barrier to entry. I think that's harder for entrepreneurs, but it also means that the life sciences folks who aren't earlier adopters miss out on some of those opportunities or it takes longer to get to them. And they fail to realize the full potential of what disruptive technology and transformative technology can do. So I think there's a lack of appreciation on both ends, both for the complexity of the life sciences industry, but also sort of the power and sophistication of software companies, not just in their technology, but the robustness of the business models that we're now well-versed in that can be brought to create transformation and change in other verticals. All right. I think that's a tremendous, um, tremendous summary, and I don't really have a lot to add to it. I'm listening with great interest. I think it's really well, well, well put, put through, Rachel. Um, 
I think that um, I would just add one thing you didn't mention. The, 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 the obviously there are two enormous differences between the the bio the biotech and when I talk about bioscience, I talk about you know therapeutic product development, discovery and development, otherwise known as biotech, and the tech side. And and the first one it deals with the very rather obvious the cost of capital. Um, not necessarily actual cost of the capital, but the cost of the capital over time and how much time that money needs to be spent. So the time value of money is a huge difference. And while I think it's generically understood, I mean, I think most people understand that. I mean, you don't need to be a specialist to understand that. I think the way it affects the way people think is is not really perceived, you know, it, on, on both sides. Okay, so there's one thing that, you know, um, in in our work um, for the for the biotech clients, while it's deeply scientific and it's deeply strategic, the 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 sort of the pressure of the next raise is never far behind. And you know, and the difference is that next raise, you know, the initial raise may get a company to two to three years, but scientific progress is 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 you know, especially in terms of drug discovery and development. Despite all the comments I made about rapidity um, much earlier, that's a relative concept. So it moves, you know, my perception, and it's only my perception because I'm not knowledgeable in, you know, particularly in the tech world, is that the tech world just moves much faster. So so I think partly it's just the way capital is deployed and thinking about capital flows in the way you fund companies in those two things is not really well understood when, it, you know, in terms of how it impacts on strategy. The other thing I would say is that the regulatory environment. Again, I mm-hmm. think it's something that's understood. I think people on the tech side do understand the that 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 the life sciences are heavily regulated, and nothing is more heavily regulated than a drug intended for a human being. But the but the reality is is that you know the the life sciences side, the pharma and biotech side, very often use the regulatory environment as a crutch. Okay, and they very often like to say, you don't understand, you can't do this, or we can't do this. The answer is too often no. And one of the things I I didn't say before in the earlier question, Eric, in fact, the first one about what I would be excited about, I'm actually excited about what Scott Gottlieb has been doing at the FDA. It's actually, you know, moving the FDA, you know, clearly into the 21st century. There's been an enormous amount of regulatory reform. Um, The FDA is accepting all kinds of technology technology-driven, you know, um, perhaps not as pivotal approval points, but as key parts of the drug, you know, the drug development process. So, you know, and I think we can look forward to a continuation of that. So I think that, in fact, I think that might be the biggest misunderstanding where from from one side that w- works in an in a, in a almost entirely unregulated world to the other side that works in an entirely regulated world and what that means for the incorporation of the technology side into the regulated world and 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 you know the pharma side or the life science side typically is you can't do that and and I always my response to that always is why and I'm never satisfied with somebody says the FDA says no right. okay so, um, you know, I think that's a that's a big, big issue there. And it's the only one I would add to what Rachel said. Totally. Transitioning a little bit to another sort of broader space, to continue the request for startups theme, where do you want to see uh, ambitious entrepreneurs building companies or innovating within either diagnostics or therapeutics? I'm glad you said diagnostics because 
you know, if part of the question, early question was what, what excites you and balanced by what, what deeply worries you is that what deeply worries me today is that still today we don't have a viable business model for diagnostics. And when I say diagnostics, I don't mean the standard diagnostics that, you know, lab core and quest run when you go to your primary care physician, but I'm talking about advanced diagnostics, molecularly based diagnostics. Um, the power that exists right now within the genome and the discoveries we've made over the course of the past two decades is certainly reflected in the medicines that we're bringing to the, to the market, but it needs to be reflected much, much more on the diagnostic side. So from an investor side, and I will tell you this because I have an experience of sitting into too many, too many investor meetings, scratching my head, uh, to a, to a pitch for a diagnostic company that can do anything from, identify your 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 risk of cardiovascular disease but in a really profound way to something that um, can actually you know determine whether you know how your prostate cancer should be treated you know and sitting there and and scratching heads of a bunch of people saying can't find a business model okay it's just from an investment point of view it's very hard to make those companies go so you do see one off Sort of situations you see, um, you see a company called Grail, um, which you may be familiar with, has raised over three hundred million dollars and just raised, I think, another round actually, early financing that's focusing on early detection in cancer, which is an enormous unmet need. You know, one of the things that I that I, I ponder is for all the progress we're making in, in in cancer, we typically don't intervene until the patient actually has a malignancy. Okay. Um, and, and we, we are well within the area in which we should be able to predict and treat those malignancies before they become malignancies. The science exists. What doesn't exist is the, is the entire systemic and the entire healthcare system that's not really oriented at prevention. And so that's a, that's a big concern. I would love to be investing in diagnostics companies, but right now I think we're going to have to see absolute systemic change in the way diagnostics are paid for in the way they have to, the burden of proof that exists for diagnostics in order to receive, you know, a reimbursement from a payer um, mm-hmm. and all the kinds of things. Because right now what people will tell you, and they're right, is diagnostics have all the downsides of developing a drug and none of the upsides of the of the reward. And I'm sorry to have to say that for anybody, diagnostic companies that are out there um, listening, but, um, but it's a very difficult place. From a therapeutic standpoint, I will just echo the comments I made before. Um, I'm interested in companies that are that are that are addressing lo- the burden of larger diseases, but in more of a 21st century way. Okay, not in the old conventional model of one pill gets gets discovered, developed, improved, and sold in a million copies, but are able to break down large population diseases into appropriate segments for for intervention with a variety of different interventions. So there's 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 interest in that space, but it's 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 embryonic at this point, you know. And and obviously, as an you know as an investor, the progress that everybody is making these days, as I said much earlier, in rare disease, you know, from an investment point of view, it's a very compelling model. So you know, I'm not suggesting those are not exciting and those are not compelling, but I always have to look at what is you know what what unfortunately is being ignored. So that's probably my my response. You know, kind of dovetailing to some of that, Ed, uh, and the projects that I see entrepreneurs working on right now, 
you know, there, there's sort of these areas of low hanging fruit where you can use maybe a mobile phone, you can take, you know, different pieces of fitness information, maybe diet information, and start to do preventative diagnostics in a, you know, in a small way, um, or maybe build that into some sort of full stack solution for specific indications or disease areas. Uh, certainly a confluence of promising diabetes apps have come out. And it looks like there's potential not just to run that as an app service on a phone, but also integrate it. Uh, maybe with a physician, with a therapeutics program, and kind of create these streamlined, more whole programs on an individual disease basis. I think that's a promising area and speaks to some of the concerns. Uh, not all of them, but, but some of the ones that, that you touched on just now. I agree. So I think, you know, full stack health products like that are certainly an interesting space. There's also thinking about maybe products like Hims, where you've got a generic that could be marketed in a different way, packaged in a different way. And there's huge potential around products like that, as well as to serve populations that haven't been well served historically. And then, of course, again, I think business processes is an area where there's a lot of complexity. So you have to be willing to brave that and dive in, but also where you can make an outsized impact on the industry. What are some Um, examples of of those processes that come to mind to you? Sure. I mean, um, you know, if I don't think of Emotion Hall first, I think um, Jared Seehafer at Enzyme is doing really interesting work helping companies manage FDA compliance and staying on track of that. That's a difficult, cumbersome business process. It's certainly not the sexiest area to be developing, but there is a place where you can have outsized impact. I think similarly, the licensing and M&A processes that we facilitate at Motion Hall are very expensive, very high value, high risk business processes that take a lot out of an organization are difficult to manage through traditional means. Somewhere that, you know, if we're successful, not only are we helping more companies succeed, we're functioning as a market maker in the space, we're accelerating the path of drugs to market, and ultimately playing a role in lowering prices as well. So I think I would encourage entrepreneurs to talk to contacts in biotech and pharma if they have them, and look for business problems that they may be closer to that they might be able to help solve, because the, the industry is littered with them, and there's been so little software intervention. Maybe a quick story, um, but Claris Ventures is one of our customers. And when I went to see Nick Simon, who's the principal there, very, very well-known guy in biotech, I said, when was the last time a software entrepreneur came to see you? And he said, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. And so that just signifies a huge gap in sort of the crosstalk and the ability to work on business problems that are embedded in the industry that are waiting for the right team to come in and tackle. For for people who out there who are deep in in machine learning, or AI and want to make a, mm-hmm. an impact in this space broad, broadly defined, where do you see the opportunities to, to there's the white space to, to leverage, leverage those skill sets? Where, where should they be thinking? It's a broad set, right? I think um, obviously business proceeds anywhere where there's decision support that relies or a decision support role that relies on a lot of data. You know, we see that in FDA compliance. We see that in the deal-making space where motion hall plays absolutely in clinical trials management in terms of commercial planning, in terms of planning for regulatory hurdles, planning um, the launch of drugs. All these things may sound foreign if you're an entrepreneur who has been really focused in AI and machine learning. But as you start to look at these problems, what you can find is a variety of data sets, some public, some private that you're going to have to dig for and build business partnerships to access that you can use and you can apply these tools and help whoever's driving that process, whether it's a clinical process, a business process, a financial process to make a better decision faster. And if that problem is big enough, which it often is in pharma, it's a massive, massive vertical, then um, then you can have an outsized impact and also build a very good business. 
I, I would second that. Um, coming back a little bit to this, you know, tech sort of life sciences, you know, divide. The other thing that strikes me, and I said this at an investor conference a couple of days ago in Boston, where I'm surrounded by a number of multiple billion dollar um, market value companies that didn't exist four or five years ago, and for all, all intents and purposes. So if you scratch your head and you say, I'm sitting around with a bunch of four or five billion dollar market value companies that didn't exist four or five years ago, that sounds like tech to me. Okay. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like biotech. Okay. So one of the things that I think we need to ponder as an investor is the is the is the path to, you know, to to companies, to really, really, really valuable companies. And what's truly exciting, particularly if you're an investor, and you're fortunate to be investing in these companies is the the ability and the speed with which these companies are actually able to move. Importantly, unlike the companies that powered the genomics bubble around the you know the turn of the century, these companies are actually product companies. They're actually discovering and developing products, but they're able to move very very quickly from discovery into clinical development, ultimately to approval particularly under some of the, and I won't get into the extensive detail around the FDA reforms put through under the 21st Century Cure Act and now accelerated by Scott Gottlieb coming in as commissioner. But, you know, drugs are getting developed much, much faster. And therefore, companies are moving through um, those value inflection phases faster. And they become very valuable companies. That's the good news. Okay. And that's tremendously exciting. The bad news Okay, and it's one of the bad news things that falls into a nice problem to have. They also become commercial organizations very quickly. And so very often they're not ready for it. There are questions, there are, as Rachel points out, there are business, essential business processes that they do not have an ability to hire fast enough. And let's just say the old model to be able to really execute. So, you know, I think when you see a company in a dynamic situation that goes from, you know, that goes from zero to 60 in, you know, in in three and a half seconds, as opposed to the 12 seconds it used to take, you know, you're looking at an opportunity. And Rachel knows I greatly discourage the use of the disruption word, but there is an opportunity for disruption. Okay, because you're dealing with a historic legacy pharmaceutical industry that had, you know, years and years and years to put in all of those processes, to put in compliance processes, to put in, you know, um, all the processes that those companies have in place on global global health policies. You know, you name it. These companies, literally, the good news is that they're they're all of a sudden very, very valuable companies. Bad news is that. They're small companies in terms of the headcount and in terms of people. From an investor point of view, that's very exciting. But from an operational point of view, it's very challenging and it can be very troubling if it's not handled well. Thank you so much for jumping on. Maybe we could close with you guys can share a little bit more about, you know, where people can learn more about you online with you know, Moshe Hall and Ed, your work as well. And any last words, advice to uh, entrepreneurs, investors listening in or, or somewhere, you know, something they should be thinking about that they're not not currently thinking about? Sure. Um, in, in my case, it would be Defined Health, www.definedhealth.com, as in D-E-F-I-N-E-D, health.com. On the web, um, the website is loaded with content um, on our strategic perspectives, our work, and um, and it's a good place to spend a, a few minutes when anybody has some time. You know, happy to engage in a dialogue around any of these topics. Um, at any time, they're quite near and dear to me. They're they're very important as a tech investor, and obviously as a prominent tech investor. I'm interested in whether any of these thoughts 
resonate with you in terms of particularly those last thoughts um, that I brought up in terms of the 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 rapid value you know acceleration that we see today in the you know in the biotech industry that 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 we didn't see you know years ago. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I mean, I think I think venture capital has had a uh, you know, really inter- like love hate or, you know, on and off relationship with, with you know, about, about it, the space is hot. Then the space is not hot. Then, then the space is, you know, STEM centrics comes out. Now everyone's investing, but no, I think, I think fundamentally, uh, opportunity from, you know, like we talked about business model earlier, you know, opportunities to figure, figure novel things out. And then just from the technology angle for people that really understand the intersection, like, like Rachel and others, you want to close? Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, sure. So, uh, motionhall.com. You can find us online. You know, as mentioned, we're a platform for biopharma deal making. I think a lot of the audience is going to be entrepreneurs and potentially VCs. If you're interested in working with us at Motion Hall, if you're, if the idea of working with large industry problems that can be very impactful and mission driven work is meaningful to you, we would love to hear from you at Motion Hall. I'm happy to be supportive with your startup or potentially talk about having you be a part of our team. I think the big takeaways that I have for folks working on their own projects, if you're interested in this vertical, run towards hard things, love complexity. Not only are you going to not have a lot of competition in your area if you do that, but you're much more likely to be successful. I think also you want to be mindful to build truly intersectional teams for your companies, whether that's a startup or your VC investor. I think if you want proof that these areas can be really, really lucrative and transformative, you only have to look as far as Viva, Flexport, which are two examples of companies that chose to love complexity in a vertical and solve a big business problem, create a lot of transformative, transformative change. And, and, and Viva, of course, sort of a you know, sales, CRM slash Salesforce for, for, for farm industry and you know, multi-billion dollar outcome, um, as is successful setting the stage for companies like Motion Hall to, to, <laughs> to be immensely successful. Thank you guys so much for, for your time. You've been very, very generous. It's been a fantastic episode. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Eric. Okay. Thank you, Ed. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 